Good morning, church. My name is Katie Benick, and I have been attending Reality for the past nine years. Today's text is from Mark 9, 38 through 50. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. Good morning. I told 9 a.m., 11 a.m. would be more excited about that passage. (laughs) Uh, My name is Melissa. I'm the youth pastor. If we have another chance to meet, maybe someday soon we will. If we have, you're probably like, as I was walking up, you're like, oh, we haven't heard from her in a minute. Yeah, I took a break. It was awesome. I got to just rest. I got to spend some time focusing in our youth space and with our leaders who, by the way, just I'll take this opportunity while they're in the room to shout out the amazing men and women who lead our youth space. They're wonderful. Um, So yeah, got to take my little teaching break. I also got to take a little mini sabbatical because guys, working from a place of rest is so good. And I got to go travel a bit. I got to go to England and see my family. And it was just really wonderful. Came back, got COVID immediately, which I managed to avoid it for three years. So it seemed, you know, about time. Um, And then it was the holidays. And then last week we had AVP, which AVP was amazing. Yes, if you were there, you know, like God is up to something and it is so exciting. Did you guys know that our church can clap? Yeah, not like, I mean, we can clap like that, but like sometimes on beat to music. That was very exciting for me. Also, sometimes we jump and dance. Like it was very, yes, it was very exciting. And I'm just so excited about what God is doing in our church. So AVP was awesome. And now I'm back and I'm so excited. And what a text to come back to. Nothing like not preaching for eight months and coming back to this. Um, So I just want to acknowledge This is intense. And if you're feeling a little tension as it was read, so was I when it was given to me, um, I definitely was like, come on, (laughs) really? But God is very good. And he has really shown me how like surprised I can be by how good he is, even in the midst of very intense and difficult scripture. So I just wanna kind of call out maybe two things that might be in the room. Um, One, you might be visiting today or maybe this is your first time at church and um, that's a big deal. 
and maybe you've avoided it for a long time because you've maybe told someone like, I don't wanna go to church, like all they talk about is like sin and hell. And your friend was like, not at our church. And then you came today and it's like, cut off your arms, worms, fire. Like, I'm not sorry, but I'm just acknowledging that, that the timing is unfortunate. But, <laughs> um, but I, and I'll, I have a follow-up statement to that in a second. I also wanna call out, maybe like me, you were raised in the believing community and you have heard this scripture before, but it kind of comes with like a little bit of maybe some like low grade trauma where like the scripture was really used to kind of be very shame inducing, to kind of push this kind of like very moralistic, like you're not doing enough. I know there was definitely a moment, I was in sixth or seventh grade and I like stood in my bathroom with my no strings attached CD and I was like, okay God, like snap it in half. I don't know if like that's what God was getting at really with this verse, but I, I think that, we can all bring a lot of things into this room and it's really, No Strings Attached, by the way, is an NSYNC album from like 2001 or something. I just, you guys didn't laugh at that, so I felt like you didn't get the joke. I needed to like fill it in. I told 9am, you guys always get my jokes, so I just need to make sure that they're making it out there. Um, anyway, wherever you kind of land this morning with your response or reaction to this text, I just want to acknowledge that some of us may have thrown up some walls when it was read. There might be this feel like this felt need to kind of protect ourselves from something as offensive as this, because it, it is offensive, it's aggressive, it's intense. And I, I wanna ask if that is you, if there's a part of you that you're aware of like, oh, I'm not gonna listen to this today, or this is not what I came here for. I wonder if you would just give God a chance to surprise you. Would you be willing to kind of lower those walls, or maybe if you don't know if you can, I'm gonna pray in a second, I'm gonna ask God to, because I really do believe that God is good. Even when his word is hard, he is good. And I believe he has a good word for us today through a hard word, and I really do think he can surprise us. Frankly, he surprised me as I spent time in this text, and I really think he's, he would like to shift some things in us, and in order for him to do that, we have to come humble and willing. He doesn't force himself on anybody. So I'm gonna pray, God, um, in your mercy, would you help us lower the walls that may be up right now? God, you are a better protector of our hearts than we can be. So Jesus, we just trust that you will be our protector in the midst of a hard word. And that you can also, like by the kindness of your spirit, draw conviction that, need, that like, we need. And God, we just speak against any attempt of the enemy to sow shame or condemnation or any sort of like confusion among us. God, he's a liar and a deceiver. He has absolutely no place here. And God, we just claim your victory over him. He does not get to play in here today. And Jesus, today, instead, we ask for your truth to flood in, to flood into our hearts, to flood into this space. Lead us in your truth. God, I thank you that you, you do lead us. We follow the way you have gone. Lord, would you um, give us the mercy and the courage to walk in your way? Take down our walls, Jesus. Humble our hearts, God, and protect our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, before we get into it, have to do a little bit of preamble. Like Jess said, we are back in our series, The Story and the Way of Jesus. We have been reading through the narrative of the book of Mark for like almost two years now on and off. And the problem with reading a long story over the course of a long time is every time you pause, you kind of lose all that momentum. You forget everything that's been happening. And this is a passage that if you just pop out of its context and read can be 
pretty damaging. <laughs> but if you read it in its context, it's actually really incredibly powerful. And so we have to remember where we've come from. So we're gonna spend a good portion of our morning kind of refreshing on what we've been doing and talking about in the book of Mark. We're also, um, and like to do that, we're gonna kind of break up our time, like our talk this morning into four parts. Um, so for your note taking, you can like organize, organize space appropriately. There'll be four parts. Also, I wanna say this is a dense passage. You could teach probably two years of collegiate level theology on what is in this passage. I have 28 minutes and 24 seconds left. I am not gonna be able to get to the breadth of this passage or the depth of this passage that it's deserved. And so I just wanna acknowledge at the end of this, you might feel like you have more questions than answers. That's okay. God can handle your questions. One of our rules of life is community. I wanna challenge you not to just have your questions and leave this building and forget them, but go into your community with them. Dig into them. Ask God to like show up. You guys, Google is a really powerful tool. Ask, like Google can steer you in the right direction with discernment, of course, but like you can, you can, you don't need a microphone to study the Bible, okay? There is stuff I'm not gonna get to this morning. You go get to it. Great, okay. Um, that's most of my preamble. We're gonna start to get into our refreshment of the book of Mark. One thing we need to remember about the book of Mark is he is writing an epic. He is such a powerful story writer. He is trying to like paint this picture for you that you just get lost in the story. He's telling the, like the story of a king. And like every good epic, he drops you in the middle of an unfolding story. He drops us in the middle, not the beginning of Jesus' life, but the middle of his life at his baptism, right before his ministry begins. And he's actually gonna drop us in like the middle of a story that's in the middle of a story because he's gonna start by laying out this prophecy from Isaiah about the arrival of Jesus. So like every good epic, we need some John Williams to set the mood. So, okay, you guys, it's Jurassic Park. Just stay with me, okay? So we have the beginning of Mark. We have Mark start by saying, listen, you actually need to remember that the people of Israel have been in this long story of waiting, okay? We had Advent not that long ago, and Advent, we enter into that waiting, the people of Israel waiting for a Messiah. And for us, Advent ends on Christmas. But for the people of Israel, that wasn't the case. They had to wait like a lifetime, Jesus's lifetime, to see kind of the fulfillment and fruition of, is he the Messiah we've been waiting for? And so we step into this waiting of the people of Israel being a people who have been exiled. They have not been in the land they were called to be in. They have not been free to worship or to practice the life that God has called them to live. And God has promised them that he is sending someone to redeem them, to restore them, to give them what he has promised them. And all of these like generations of the Old Testament have been waiting for that to happen. All these prophecies that are pointing them to this coming thing that's going to happen. And then Jesus shows up and Jesus, Mark, like wants you to understand, okay, like pay attention, things are happening. So he starts to paint this very royal picture, quoting from Isaiah. He says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Mark is saying the king is coming. John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for him. And then Jesus is going to like confirm this. Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is saying, the kingdom is here. The king is here. 
what you have been waiting for. It's here. And still the people are going to have this like, oh, we don't know. Like, is he what we've been waiting for? And then he starts doing miracles. And the first half of the book of Mark is these just like amazing accounts of Jesus healing the blind, healing the sick, casting out demons, speaking against the religious leaders and their hypocrisy. He's just doing amazing things, feeding 4,000 people, feeding 5,000 people, like doing all these things. And with everything he does, building this excitement and expectation and anticipation that this is the king you have been waiting for. This is like the warrior Messiah who's gonna come in, upend Rome, give the people of Israel their rightful place. He's gonna do everything they've been waiting for. The time has come, it's now. Yeah, thank you, it's very exciting. You guys, original. <laughs> Originally, I had that where it played the whole way and it was such a vibe, but then like copyrights are a thing and anyway, doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> it was so good. You'll just have to believe me. Um, that is what's happening in the first eight chapters of Mark. Jesus has like, is doing these things and he is giving this trajectory for the people that he is making his way to his kingship. And for the people who are watching this happen, including the disciples, that means he is making his way to the throne. But then we get to Mark 8. And the second half of Mark is completely different than the first half. He's only gonna do one miracle in the rest of the book of Mark. Now things start to get a little dark because Jesus starts talking about the reality of what his kingship looks like. He is not making his way to a throne. He is making his way to a cross. And he's not being coy about it. He's straight up telling the disciples what's coming. He says uh, in chapter eight, that the son of man himself must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed and after three days rise again. And Peter, it says, rebukes Jesus. Bad idea, you should never rebuke Jesus. But Peter does because he's feisty. And Jesus responds to Peter. And I'm going to include the full thing of what Jesus says to him because we need to start to pick up on what Jesus is like dripping to his disciples. We need to pick up on like the theme that he is really trying to like hone in with them. So Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Okay. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely the concerns of man. And he called the crowd to him alongside his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus is saying, you think my kingdom looks this way. That is not the kind of kingdom I'm building. I am not that kind of king. We see these kingdoms start to clash here. And if I'm the disciples, that's a little confusing. I might, like, there's some whiplash happening because remember, for eight chapters of Mark, I've been watching Jesus do amazing things, hustle up huge crowds, gain all of this like fame and notoriety, right? If I'm a disciple in the room, I'm like, Jesus, dude, read the room. What are you talking about? We are like, people are for us. Like, you are doing so well. You don't need to die. Why are you talking about death? Look at how well you're doing. That is not what Jesus is doing though. That's not what he's trying to do. And then just to kind of like make things a little more confusing for the disciples, a few verses later, Jesus takes a few of them up onto the top of a mountain and they get to witness his transfiguration, which is a whole other sermon. And like, like the short version is like Jesus like glows. He like is lit with the full like power and majesty and righteousness of God. And the disciples are, if I'm a disciple, like watching this and I would imagine they're like, this is what we're talking about. You don't need to die. You are literally on fire. Like, look at you. What are you worried about? You are doing great. This is amazing. And clearly the disciples have like a total proximity to power thing happening because on the way down the mountain, they're like talking about which one, like which one of them is the coolest and the best. 
which you can understand if you've ever been like a maid of honor or a best man at a wedding. Like, you know, there's like the bride and the groom, but the next coolest person in the room is definitely you. And that is exactly what the disciples are experiencing. They see what Jesus is about and they're like, man, I see this king go into his throne and I am gonna be right next to him. This is amazing, right? But no, that's not what Jesus is doing. When they're on their journey, Jesus is like, what were you guys talking about on the road? And the disciples, completely embarrassed, are like, nothing. No, no, nothing. Lunch, you know, like not anything. And Jesus, knowing full well what they were talking about, calls them out, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, anyone who wants to be first in my kingdom must be the very last. And it says he pulls a child into the room and says, in fact, if you want to welcome me, you have to welcome a child. Which to the people in the room would just be like kind of absurd. They're like, you are the Messiah. This kid, I have to welcome him. He lives here. Like, no, I don't. That's just so counter to everything the disciples are looking for. And Jesus just keeps trying to say to them, that is not the kind of kingdom I'm building. That is not the kind of king I am. I am building a different kingdom. I am a different kind of king. And this begins to move us into the text we have today. Now, before we get there, I just wanna, I'm gonna, I wanna like retell that portion of what we just talked about because it's like one, one continuous thing happening. I don't want to lose that momentum. So we are heading now into part two, which I have titled, I got soul, but I'm not a soldier. Thank you, Killers fans in the room. If you don't know that song, you should listen to it. And then you will think this is so genius because I laughed out loud when I typed it. I thought it was so funny. And you guys, 9am thought it was funnier than you do. So <laughs> note taken. But um, okay, so Jesus brings this kid in the room and he says, if you want to be like me, if you want to welcome me, you have to actually welcome the least of these. And John, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, John kind of seeing himself as like the spokesperson of the room stands up and he's like, teacher, Jesus, we get it. We get you are doing something different. Listen, just the other day, we saw this guy casting out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. Like we, we get it. We are on board with what you're building and we are here to defend you. Don't you worry. And like if face palms were a thing back then, I'm pretty sure Jesus would be doing one because this is just, again, not what he's saying. The disciples have like are creating this illusion as if like, Jesus, you are the king. We are your soldiers. We defend your honor as if Jesus needed their help to do that. But the disciples are so wrapped in their idea of what God's kind of kingdom is and their place in it. Jesus actually sees right through this he knows they're not defending his kingdom. They're defending their place in the kingdom they want him to build. And that's like such a different thing. And Jesus isn't interested in building that kind of kingdom where it's like, you know, if, if you picture like a castle and the walls around it, like the disciples are like tightening everything, pushing all the walls in so that no one can get in. That already existed. That was the Pharisees. That's what Jesus was directly addressing and calling out saying, that's not what I'm about. That was not what he was coming to build or coming to do. And so Jesus responds. He says, don't stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Whoever is not against us is for us. That is a wide net. Whoever is not against us is for us. I'm not against hiking. It's fine. I'm not trying to spend like 10 hours in the woods. This is why all of my friends who backpack, and I have many, do not invite me. I am familiar with a poop shovel. I want nothing to do with it. But by Jesus' standard, me being not against hiking makes me pro-poop shovel. And that's absurd. No one builds kingdoms like that, right? 
That's not how we like our kingdoms. We like our kingdoms very organized, very about the same thing, very around one idea. Let's talk about kingdoms for a minute. Kingdoms as we know them, they are built around a king or a queen, right? And usually this king or queen, um, not, I, I mean, I, I'll say usually, fine. Usually this king or queen, like, doesn't matter if they deserve that title. They are born into it or they took it forcefully and they can very easily be corrupt. It's a, it's a crown given to them or taken regardless of their status or their worthiness of it. And so um, kings and queens are also temporal, right? The good news about that is if you have a bad king or queen, he'll die eventually, that's good. The bad news about that is if you have a good king or queen, they're gonna die eventually. And then you don't know what's coming next which makes kingdoms so volatile. They can be good for one second, horrible for another second. Like you just don't really know what you're getting. Another thing about kingdoms is they are about what the king or the queen is about, which is usually self-preservation, right? God save the queen. (laughs) They are about maintaining and preserving their wealth, their wealth and their privilege, their place. And famously, they're about their own agenda. So if the king wants to be able to divorce his wife, that's what the kingdom's about. Kingdom, kingdoms are also built around a system of separation and exclusivity, right? Whether it's the castle protecting the king and keeping him separate or the walls around the kingdom, keeping the kingdom separate from the outsiders, that kingdoms are really built around this idea of isolating and protecting the different people and roles they have within the kingdom. Kingdoms are also built on absolute power and authority, which most often is used as a means of oppression and suffering for those who are not at the center of power. And finally, ideally, kingdoms are peaceful, right? That's the whole reason you even want to attempt any of this. The whole hope is to be able to maintain and sustain a way of living for everyone in the kingdom. Although, of course, both like within the kingdom, you don't want any problems. You don't want problems from outside the kingdom either. Although I think we all know, um, generally speaking, that has not been super successful. It's probably why you don't see more kingdoms around these days. For all of their problems, we still actually are like pretty enamored with kingdoms, And it's not just us, the people of Israel were too, when the people of Israel were like kind of getting themselves in order, God wanted to give them judges as like a system. And they said, no, we don't want judges, we want kings. Everybody else has a king, we want a king. We're like this too, we love the idea of royalty, right? Like little girls, we wanna be princesses. When you feel like your friend's doing a really good job, you say, yes, queen, right? No one's ever like, I'm feeling so good, I'm like a villager. We like the ideas of kingdoms because we assume that we are in charge of them. We are the royalty. We are the ones at the top with the privilege and the power and the protection. We love kingdoms. And as the disciples are trying to tighten the walls around God's kingdom, what Jesus is doing with this verse is he's saying, that is not what I'm doing. I'm actually pushing these walls out. I am backing up these walls. I'm like getting my hands in the castle even and pushing the walls out because my kingdom is not like that. I am not trying to self-protect or self-preserve. I am not trying to like have a, any sort of ego here. This is a kingdom for anyone who will accept me as king. There is room here. And Jesus, like we start to see like the rate, like the mama bearness come up in him because it's one thing if, they're gonna, if his disciples are gonna misunderstand his kingdom. That's been happening over and over again. We see he's like over and over again being like, you guys, do you hear like, I'm, deny yourself, like all, he's saying it over and over again, they're not getting it. But what Jesus has no tolerance for is if their misunderstanding of his kingdom misleads others. These are the guys he's like leaving his job with. And if they don't get it, 
and they mislead people to where his kingdom's supposed to be, he's got a real problem with that. He says, if any of you, well, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If you don't get my kingdom and then you try to like misrepresent it to other people, you have got some problems coming your way. You might just wanna go ahead and jump off the cliff because that's better than what I've got for you. He takes this so seriously. Jesus takes his kingdom so seriously. To him, it means everything. It is why he came. He came, he said, the kingdom is near. He came to bring it and he will not have anybody manage his kingdom. It is his to manage. And this like, like, what he is getting worked up about, he brings into this next passage. And I think when we read this next passage, it jolts us. It's supposed to. Jesus is trying to get their attention. He's trying to get our attention because his kingdom is so important. He is not messing around here. This is not just like, no big deal. If you get it, great. No, you have to get it. You can put that passage up. As, um, I think when we look at this passage, we typically look at it and we kind of assign a tone to it of like Jesus being like an angry parent who is just frustrated and angry that we have not done enough. Why do you still have this problem? Cut off your hands to deal with it. That's, that's not where he's coming from. If this was meant to be like an instruction on avoiding hell or even someone being really annoyed and upset that you weren't doing a good enough job to avoid hell, which by the way, you can't ever, that was Jesus's job. But if it were supposed to be, it'd be doing a bad job. If my hand causes me to stumble and I cut it off, if my foot causes me to stumble and I cut it off, like, you guys, Jesus is not, he's being hyperbolic. He's not asking you to cut anything off because he knows the problem is not your hands, the problem is not your feet, the problem is not your eyes, the problem is your heart. This is what he's saying. We just talked about like this wall, right? That he's pushing these walls out. Think of this passage as like warning signs on the interior of those walls. Warning signs that say, beware, because on the other side of this wall is sin. And sin is not just like chilling idly over there, like wonder if anyone will come hang out. Sin has an agenda. It is coming after you. This is what happened in the garden. Jesus set up this beautiful, perfect place where he got to be with his people, dwell with them. And it's not like he said, have a great time, don't eat from that tree. And then they were like, I don't know, that tree looks pretty good. The serpent came after Eve, looking for problems, like trying to manipulate her. And so when Jesus says, if something causes you to stumble, cut it off, think about like that imagery of a snake. If the snake has your hand, Jesus knows soon it will have your arm, it will have your body, all of you, because it is out to destroy you. That is what sin's job is. You guys ever seen like those videos of like a snake that's like approaching a chicken and you're like, what's gonna happen here? And then it's like snake, chicken, snake. Eats the whole thing. That's what sin does. It doesn't seem like it when it's got your hand, but that is its job and it is good at its job. You have an enemy, he's out to destroy you. And this verse is a warning, not because God is angry, but because God loves you so much, he does not want you to be destroyed. He said, cut off your hand, you won't need it here. You can be safe with me here. Better you're in here without your hand than you were out there, snake, chicken, snake. This is a word of love. Think about a parent who is seeing their child having a great time, not aware of what's around them, seeing a monster truck coming and rolling at them. Would that parent not do everything they possibly could, make as much of a scene as possible to get their attention to move them? This is Jesus saying, you need to watch out. There is something after you. My kingdom 
is the place, like the place you will be safe. My kingdom is the place you will thrive. Sin wants to destroy and consume everyone and everything. My kingdom wants to bring life and life to the full. My kingdom is like the best thing I could possibly, the best thing you can possibly imagine. Do what it takes to be in my kingdom. It will be worth it. Lose a hand, worth it. This passage is an illustration of the incomparable goodness and salvation King Jesus brings us with his kingdom and the essential formational work his spirit does in us. So let's talk about that for a minute. I know that we don't really like generally, I'll speak for myself, but I assume I'm speaking for you guys too. We don't like being told what to do. I don't like being told what to do. I don't like recipes. I don't like a website that has seven hours worth of like the story of why you like your chili so much before you tell me what ingredients I need. I'll decide what ingredients I need. I don't care about your story. <laughs> like I don't like being told what to do. I think we especially don't like being told to do what it takes. That's like some pretty aggressive instruction. But I think that if we're honest with ourselves, like we don't really mind making, I mean, well, we mind, but like we're willing to make sacrifices. We do it all the time for, for things that happens, right? And I think we actually like make heroes and legends out of people who do. Think about like the Olympics that right before a big Olympic event, there's um, like a human interest story about the person who was like ice skating in utero and then they like came out with ice skates on and they just skated their whole life and like they did what it takes and now they have a gold medal, right? Or like an actor or an actress is like on the Oscar stage with like their Oscar and they're just like saying, you know, I like lived in my car for 10 years and I, you know, waiter, was a waitress and I, you know, little boys and little girls, if this is your dream, do what it takes and you like can achieve it. And we're like, yeah. Or like entrepreneurs who like spend hundreds of hours working a week and give every ounce of money they have and time they have to like an empire they're trying to build. And then they're very successful and they write a book and they're like, I just did what it takes. And we're like, we will too. We do what it takes if we're building our own kingdom. We don't like doing what it takes for someone else's. And the reality is like over the last few weeks as we have been talking about vision and the vision God has for our life, that formation is a part of that. And formation will always come with a cost. Everything comes with a cost. That is just real life. Life costs stuff. I don't, like not a lot of freebies lying around out here. And so I think as we're thinking about like the idea of formation, we've talked a lot about like the things we add to our lives, right? We talk about the rule of life, community, Sabbath, fasting, prayer, scripture, really good and important and essential things that form us more to the likeness of Jesus. But in pretty much any version of formation, it's as much about what you take away as what you add, like any sort of sculpting, right? If you're sculpting a piece of clay, eventually you'll have to trim. If you're sculpting rock, you'll have to chisel. If you're sculpting wood, you'll have to carve. There's gonna be stuff that gets cut out. It is just a reality of being formed. If there wasn't, we'd all just be big blobs. We need things to be taken out. This passage is a loving and merciful word that says there are things that do need to be cut off. There, that is a cost, but if you're gonna pay for something, I think it's important for us to, for you to know like what you're paying for, right? And what God is saying is my kingdom, my kingdom is what you're paying for and it's worth it. So let's talk about the kingdom of God. We talked about earthly kingdoms. Let's kind of, we're gonna then like contrast a little bit. The kingdom of God is eternally peaceful. 
That is his promise. I don't know about you guys, but the world we're living in is rough. And pretty much no matter like what you're looking for, what we need and want and cannot seem to get our grip on despite our best efforts is peace. Peace is, it feels impossible. Jesus is the prince of peace. He calls him, he, like that is what he has been labeled. He promises peace within ourselves. It is his gift, a peace that passes all understanding. Peace like between us and God that Jesus stepped in on our behalf to reconcile us to him. And peace even among each other. The way that Jesus ends this passage is, uh, he says, have salt among yourselves. That's another sermon. Um, and be at peace with each other. It matters to him that in his kingdom, his people are at peace. This whole thing started because the disciples were picking a fight with somebody. And Jesus is like, no, in my kingdom, be at peace. That is what God's kingdom is about, peace, eternally peaceful. It like was, is, and will be, peace. God's kingdom is built around God being with us. Unlike every other kingdom where the king tries to like protect themselves and isolate themselves, God's kingdom is built on a God who lowered himself and came to be with us. He got all up in the village with us. He hung out with us in the village. What other king did that? In Aladdin, I think Jasmine did hang out in the village, but she had an agenda all her own. Like that wasn't for the people, that was all for her. God did that. Jesus did that. He is that kind of a king that he wanted to get in with his people. And his desire is that no one will be left outside. Anyone who will accept him as king can be in this kingdom. There is no exclusivity. God's kingdom is built on absolute power and authority, but unlike any other king, God withheld his right to it. Instead of taking the place he should have taken on the throne he deserved, he went up on a cross. And instead of using his place of power, like that as a means of our oppression and our suffering, he took on our oppression and our suffering so that we wouldn't have to. What other king does that? Who does that? The kingdom of God is built around what God is about and that is what God is about, self-sacrificing radical love. The kingdom of God is about the last being first and the first being last. It is about the flourishing of other people. His kingdom is oriented to everyone else because he loved them, because he loves them. In God's kingdom, the poor, the meek, the mourning, the peacemakers, the persecuted, they are called dignified, honored, and blessed. This is an upside down kingdom that God is building. And all of that is great, but the only reason it's as great as it is is because our kingdom is built on God. The only king who is actually worthy of that title he lived up to its standard. He is righteous and just. He is eternal. There is no one who can come in and take his crown from him. He has already defeated the only enemy he had, sin and death. He already won that victory. So his kingdom, his reign was, is, and will be. Like it is stable. It is trustworthy. And I think if you were to like compare these two kingdoms, if you were to like put up on a chart, like both and say, which one do you want to everyone? I think everyone very nearly would say, we want that one. This is the kingdom we all want. So why is it so difficult for us to get on board? We don't want anyone else to be king. We wanna be king. And the reality is this king asks for something from us, but it is for our good. And if, you, if we're honest with each other, if you're honest with yourself, you do give kingship to other things in your life. I do. Um, our success, our desire to be happy or feel fulfilled, um, family, certain relationships. There are a lot of things that we give like the role of king in our lives. 
But I think that if you were to ask yourself how good of a job they do of being king in your life, it would look a lot like the other list we made. Because these things are volatile. They are temporary. They don't serve others well. These are kingdoms oriented to ourselves and our own privilege and our own preference. That is not a sustainable kingdom. The kingdom of God is. And as, as the band comes back up and we start to kind of finish, I, as I was preparing for this sermon, what God just kept like really honing in for me is that this all is really good, but if you don't understand how good of a king we have, it's kind of lost on you. This is all good because you have a good, good king. You have an insanely kind, generous, self-sacrificing king who gave up everything to be with you. He's not asking you to pay any cost. He did not first pay himself. He is trustworthy. He is generous. He is merciful. It is his kindness that says to us, that thing that has your hand, you need to get, like, hurry, get it off so that you can be safe with me, so you can flourish with me. That is the kind of king he is. Now, um, Jesus, I, I can't convince anybody of how good of a king God is or how good his kingdom is. That is God's job. And I trust that he will do and is doing that work in our hearts and our minds. And band, if you're around, you can come on up. But um, I want to read Jesus's words about his kingdom because I think they are far, I think they're beautiful. And I think this is exactly what we're talking about here. In Matthew, Jesus talking about his kingdom, he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is worth everything. And I know because I gave everything for it. It is worth it. God's promise to you is abundant life peace that passes understanding, a deep joy and hope that is greater than your circumstances or your own sense of fulfillment or anything else you can put as the king of your life. So God, we just, we need your vision for your kingdom. God, we need, we need to like be able to see the beauty and the power of what you have done for us and what you invite us into. And I don't know where you guys are in the room this morning, but I, for those of us who are here and we feel like we, um, we are like walking around the kingdom of God, like maimed and joyful and like with such hope because we know what God is up to and we see it in our lives, like praise the Lord this morning. Like I hope you can just worship at the feet of Jesus, your good King for what he has done and what he is doing. This morning, if you are here and you're like, I know there are things that have a hold on me that I know God wants to cut off, but man, like I do not know how to do that. I don't wanna do that. I'm afraid to do that. Jesus, would you give us the courage to take the step towards you, trusting you that if we let go of that thing, you will give us so much more. If that's you this morning, I would invite you to come down to the prayer team when they're like, as we get there in a minute and, and have someone stand with you in that 
in that process, pray with you and pray for you in that. And this morning, if you um, have never said yes to Jesus before, if you're hearing about his kingdom today and you're like, yeah, that sounds pretty amazing. Or maybe you're like, that sounds interesting. I have a lot of questions. Would you come and ask someone those questions? The prayer team will be up here. Ask the friend who brought you. God's kingdom is, there's just absolutely nothing better. It is worth all we can have, all we can give, all we have to give. Because Jesus is all worth all we have to give. He gave all he had for us. Lord, this is your work to do. God, would you move in our hearts? Would you give us courage? Would you give us hope that you are the best thing for us? You are our greatest hope. You are our greatest joy. You are our great King. Amen.